And we're going to take a look at Jacob. And is my microphone on? There it is. I'm trying this new one. How many of you have noticed this? This is a, somebody said to me last week, what is that growing out of your face? And that's a, that's a microphone. But boy, does it make a difference on the, the sound with radio a lot. So, amen. Uh, we're going to get into Genesis tonight. And I have brought, as usual, these transparencies to kind of help us along. Now, let's just backtrack a little bit. I'm going to see how many of you have really, really been paying attention. By the way, let's just stand up together one more time. And let's, uh, Genesis 12 is such a watershed scripture because Genesis 12 marks the beginning of what's called the patriarchal age. Now, let's see how sharp you folks are who have been with me this whole time. What was it called? What was the time period called before the flood? Anti-Diluvian. Who said that? You get free cookies afterwards. All right. And then after the flood, it was called post-Diluvian. Now, that's, you know, just a fancy word, but before the flood, after the flood. But once you arrive at Genesis 12, we begin the patriarchal age. It begins with the call of Abram. We're going to read about that in just a moment. But when Abram was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, this was a hugely defining moment because now God is starting to work out his plan from Genesis 3.15. And let me just quickly read that, and then I'm going to let you be seated. I will put enmity. Now, he's talking to the devil. He's talking to Satan. Genesis 3.15. And he's making a prediction. This is after the fall of man into sin. Sickness has entered. Death has entered. And God speaks to the devil and says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Satan, you're going to receive a death blow from this person that comes from the woman's seed. And you are going to bruise his heel, an uncanny prediction of the cross where Jesus' heel was pierced. Now, God begins to work that plan out in time and space in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram. Now he's actually calling a man and putting his hand and his anointing and his promise on that man. Now let's quickly look. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Genesis 12, 1, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now here comes the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to this man, Abram. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's going to happen, of course, through the Messiah. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Speak to our hearts and bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you. Now, Abraham, as Abram, believes God, obeys God. And he begins a 400-mile journey, and he travels all the way to Canaan, the Promised Land. Uh, He crosses the Euphrates River. He crosses all kinds of wilderness, all kinds of country, all kinds of of, uh, just woods and open fields and uh, just territory that he'd never seen before. One of the great things about Abram is the Bible says he obeyed God and went out not knowing where he went. He just started walking, not knowing where he was going to end up. 
Isn't that the way faith sometimes happens? God will say, do this, do that. And for you to do it, you don't know the outcome. So I call one of the miracles of Abram's life the miracle of uncertain outcomes. There were many times in Abram's life the outcome of something was uncertain. He didn't know. If you had stopped him halfway on his way to Canaan and said, where are you going? He just said, I don't know. Why are you going? God told me to start walking. Well, how are you going to take care of yourself? I don't know. What are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. Uncertain outcomes. Well, Abram, what are you all about? Well, here's what I'm about. I'm about following God. I think one of the other amazing things about him is he had no Bible. There was no Bible. You know, every day I get up and I read the Bible. I study it. I soak it in. I spent a good hour this morning just going through the scriptures because I need it to strengthen me and, and to build my faith. But this man, Abram, when God spoke to him, and we don't know what fashion his voice came to him in, was it audible? Was it something in his heart? Was it a, 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 just an, a, a sense that he ought to do something? We don't know. But we know that God communicated with Abram. But he did not have the Bible to go look at and read and gain strength or wisdom or direction or anything from. It was just him and God. There wasn't one scripture verse ever written until Moses was in the wilderness and began to pen Genesis that we're studying right now. But Genesis didn't exist in Abram's day. So here he goes, just walking in faith. And God was beginning now to work out his promise in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a seed from the woman. It's going to be the end of you. He's going to be the end of you, Satan. He's going to destroy you. Now with Abram, God is beginning to put together a people. And through those people is going to come the Messiah. Now, uh, Abram uh, married to Sarah. Finally, well, let me just turn this on and we'll just, we'll just look at it. Let's do a quick overview. Abraham entered the promised land when he was 75 years old. But it was not until he was 100 and his wife Sarah was 90 that they finally had that child of promise named Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, who was the granddaughter of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Now that's the promised line. And this promised line continued with the birth of twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, when Isaac was 60 years old. Although Esau was technically the firstborn and also the favorite of his father Isaac, he lost the birthright and its accompanying blessing, partly because of his own disregard for its value and partly because of Jacob's trickery. You remember the story? How Jacob met him when he was coming out of the field. And Esau was hungry, starving. He'd been hunting. And Jacob, being a trickster, this was his character. And we're going to look at it in just a moment. But he was a manipulator. And I'm so thankful that the Bible tells us the truth about the people in it. Because then we can see the way they changed. But he was a manipulator. A, a, a con, really. He was waiting for Esau for, for the most opportune, vulnerable moment when Esau could be hit with the proposition of selling his birthright. Now the birthright had to do with all the rights of the firstborn. The firstborn got a double portion of everything from the father. The firstborn was given preeminence. 
The firstborn was in a position of honor, and Esau was the firstborn. So Jacob meets him with, in essence, a bowl of porridge and kind of blows the fragrance his way. He says, hungry are you, Esau? Hard day in the field? How would you like a bowl of stew? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm starving. Well, all you got to do, a little price tag attached to it. I just want your birthright. Let me tell you something, folks. You got to be real hungry to sell your birthright for that. But you know what it tells us about Esau? He did not have regard for his position as firstborn. He didn't have regard for God's purpose for his life. So he, he sold himself out for a bowl of porridge. Jacob got it by trickery. Now, it says, indeed, much of Jacob's early life seemed to be spent in trying to get the best of a deal. And so Jacob, the Hebrew word means deceiver, was well-named. Jacob gained Esau's blessing. Jacob and Esau were approximately 60 years old when Jacob stole Esau's blessing. I always thought he was younger, but he wasn't. He was 60. They were both 60. This great deception that took place, and let me real quickly... uh, describe that we've gone over the story many times in this church but you know how that that uh not only did he steal his birthright but he stole the blessing and he did this with the help of his mother and his mother heard heard isaac talking about laying hands on esau and blessing him with the blessing of the firstborn now folks we got to understand tonight that god when the two boys were born god spoke then and he said the younger is going to rule over the older the older is going to serve the younger it's my will and it was the choosing of God it's one of those things where you can't argue with God where God does what he wants to do because he's God the two children were in the womb twins and the Bible says that as Esau was being born Jacob grabbed his heel and so he was called, even then, they, they were at odds with one another. Even then there was conflict. Even then there was the desire on Jacob. It was a foreshadowing of what was coming. That Jacob was always trying to supplant him or overtake him or take advantage of him. But God had spoken. So when, when Rebekah heard Isaac saying, I'm going to lay hands on, on um, Esau and give him the blessing of the firstborn, She thought to herself, and rightly so, that's not the will of God. That's not what God said. But the way she went around taking care of it was wrong because she calls um, Jacob to herself. She says, I want you to go wrap your arms in animal skin because the Bible says that Esau was a hairy man and Jacob was smooth-skinned. Jacob was a city boy and Esau was a country boy. It was really like that. And so... He did just that. And Isaac had lost his sight in his older days, and he thought he was about to die. Do you know that thinking he was going to die, he did this, but he lived 60 years longer after this? But thinking he's going to die, his eyes have grown dim. Rebecca ushers Jacob in there with his arms covered in animal skin. And Isaac reaches out and feels of the arms. I got to tell you something, folks. I say this every time I teach this, but that boy was hairy. If animal skin felt normal to Isaac, he said, there's my son Esau. And so he reaches out 
and through deception, Rebekah and Jacob orchestrate Jacob getting the blessing of the firstborn. Well, this deception that everybody was involved in except Isaac produced suffering in everybody who was involved. Isaac suffered for his preference for Esau, which was not determined by the will of God, but by his weak affection. He should have crucified his affections and done the will of God. But he allowed his personal favorite, Esau, to dominate his decision instead of the will of God. And that's a lesson for you and me. You can't let your emotions move you to make decisions that are life-altering. You need to walk according to the will of God, not your preferences. Because preferences change. Your emotions change. How many of you know that's true? Affections change. But the will of God abides forever, the Bible says. And so here's Isaac knowing what the will of God was. He knew that the will of God was for Jacob to receive the blessing. So he should have been doing it out in the open in front of everybody. But he had to be deceived. And that deception brought pain and suffering to everybody. Esau suffered for despising the blessing of the firstborn. He should never have sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Of course not. Rebecca suffered in never seeing Jacob again. She never saw Jacob again. When he fled to Laban's house in another area, another land, she never saw him again. She had to do that because of the deception. Jacob suffered a strain of hardship and deception at the hand of Laban. Boy, did he, and we're going to look at that now. Jacob's life at Haran, the Bible says... After Jacob lied to his father to obtain the blessing, Esau was understandably upset. So much so that he began to plot how he might kill his brother. When Jacob was told of Esau's planned revenge, he fled from the land back to the house of Rebekah's brother, Laban. So he fled to his uncle Laban's house. During that trip, while he was leaving, running from Esau, knowing if Esau finds me now, he's already said, he's going to kill me. So he flees, he packs a suitcase quick, he hits the road. He's all by himself. And the Bible says on his way to Laban's house, during that trip the Lord showed him an amazing vision of future events. Let's read about it. Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden you're walking, here's a stairway, a supernatural stairway, and it says its top reached all the way to heaven. As he looked to the top of that stairway, just kind of disappearing into the clouds, he saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder, on the stairway. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. What is this promise starting to sound like? What is it a repeat of? Abraham's promise. So here he is. He's running from having deceived somebody. And yet God's talking to him. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. All this was, was a repeat of what God has, had told his grandfather. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will, this is crucial, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, can I just quote a little New Testament verse for you and me? He which has begun a good work will finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. Same God, just dealing in a different dispensation of time. But I hear that promise in Philippians 1, 6. He who has begun a good work in you will finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. I will not leave you till I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How many of you have ever suddenly been aware that God was in a place or or he was very present and you suddenly became aware of it and you had not been before then? Suddenly, wow. The Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He's been dealing with me, and I didn't know it. He's been speaking to me, and it it took a while for me to know it. I didn't know God was here. And he said, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz or Luz, whichever you want. You know what? It won't change your life either way. Now, these promises originally given to Abraham were reaffirmed to Jacob. He would be given the land. His descendants would be numbered as the dust of the earth. And once again, the promise was reiterated that, let's read it together, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He was talking about Messiah there. Jacob, you're chosen. You are in a line, a lineage, that is finally, ultimately, going to result in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Out of your lineage, I'm going to bring forth the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, this means a lot to me at Christmas time. Because this is God preparing Christmas. The vision made such an impression on Jacob that he named the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. Moreover, Jacob made a vow. Can we say the vow together? If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. Just this morning, stop a minute. I was reading Matthew 6 where Jesus said, why are you worried about food and clothing? What you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Why are you worried about that? Jesus told us not to worry about three things. He said, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to wear or drink or eat. And don't worry about tomorrow. And when I hear this, I tell you, I I hear Jesus. He says, Jacob says, if you give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then Jehovah shall be my God. This was Jacob's first spiritually defining moment. Now, how many of you can say, Pastor Jeff, I have had a spiritually defining moment. Can you say that? What's a defining moment? 
A defining moment is a moment in time where something happens that defines you. It doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just make an impression on you. It defines you. A, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching, this is real practical and probably a little carnal. I was watching the Cowboys game. And do you remember that game where most everybody turned it off because we thought it was over? I did. I turned it off. I thought it was over. And this guy called me, one of my friends, and he said, turn it on, turn it on. I said, what's the matter? It's over. He said, no, they just scored. They just won. I couldn't believe it. Now, when I turned it on and saw that, that affected me, but it didn't define me. Now, there's some people, it defined them. It defined Jerry Jones. It defined, you know, a few, but it didn't define me. It affected me. There's a lot of things in life, folks, that affect you, but there's not very many things that define you. Pain, as I was preaching on the radio tonight, can define you. An encounter with God defines you. A defining moment is when God touches you in a way that you are never the same again. It defines you. And we're going to see tonight, I'm going to point out two spiritually defining moments in the life of Jacob. To me, this is one of them. Because look at what he did. He had finally made a commitment to recognize and serve the God of Isaac and Abraham. For the first time in his life, he made a commitment to God. It defined him. You know what we need, folks? We need God to move in such a way that people all over Fort Worth start having defining moments. Not just something that affects them, you know, a good message or, or, you know, a church they like to go to. But I mean an encounter with God that defines them. Where they just say, never the same again. Not ever. Am I ever going to be the same again? Because God touched me. And, and it's made me commit my life to Him. It's made me turn to Him. It's made me, uh, uh, it's changed something about me forever. It has altered my life forever. And this happened to Jacob right here when he had the dream of the, of the stairway going up to heaven. Now Jacob, it says, nevertheless, Jacob still faced many years of hardship and frustration. And I want to say this about that. You'll find that a lot of times you'll have a defining moment with God before you do enter into a hard time. God gives you a defining moment knowing what you're about to face. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes a defining moment is to undergird you for a difficult hour that's coming. And with Jacob, he needed this vision of the stairway to heaven because he was about to enter into 20 years of difficulty. Nevertheless, he still faced many years of hardship and frustration. He soon discovered that he has met his match with his uncle Laban, who was able to trick him into a total of 20 years of labor before he was able to leave the place. Now, during the first 14 years, here's what ate up, 14 years of those 20. Now, remember, when Rebecca sent him away, she said, go for about a month and I'll see you later. Sometimes when you say goodbye to somebody, folks, you don't know it, but that's it. You can never assume a tomorrow. You have today. When Rebecca said, see you, son, go on and see Laban for about a month and then come back, the month became 20 years and he never saw her again. During the first 14 years, he managed to marry two of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. And he accumulated a family of 12 sons 
by these two wives plus two other concubines. The last of those sons was Joseph, who we're going to look at next time, who was born at the end of the first 14 years. I want you to notice something. This is one of the most uncanny stories in the Bible. The sower of deception reaped deception. The Bible reveals an uncanny resemblance in Jacob's deception of his father and the deception he personally experienced toward himself. How did he deceive his father? He went to his father pretending to be somebody he was not. And he deceived him, took advantage of his vulnerability, and deceived him. He masqueraded as somebody he was not. It says Jacob served seven years to get Rachel for a wife, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And then here's what happened. Then Jacob said to Laban after the seven years, because that was the deal they'd struck, I want Rachel for my wife. Laban said, cool, you can have her. Work for me seven years and she's yours. Then Jacob said to Laban after seven years, give me my wife. My time is completed. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. Now, I don't get this next statement. I've never gotten it. But it says, when morning came, I like the way the King James says it, behold, it was Leah. Now, I got to tell you, they drank something strong the night before or, or celebrated till like 4 or 5 in the morning where he did not have his wits about it because how in the world, but that's what the Bible says. That's why I don't understand the thing of Isaac thinking that Jacob was Esau. That's, but it happened. Here, behold, it was Leah. How many of you can say that would not make your wedding day? Now look at this. I, I found this comment from a Jewish commentator on this, and this is good. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now he's, he's using poetic license here, but I like this. Jacob said to her, deceiver and daughter of a deceiver. At night I called you Rachel, and you responded to that name. She replied, is there a school without disciples? Did your father not call you Esau? And did you not respond? <clears throat> Behold, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows. And you talk about exact sowing. So remember this. I remember this as a definition of the fear of the Lord. God is watching and weighing every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. He watches and he weighs every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge of that, the awareness of that. So here's Jacob. I'm Esau. Isaac, oh, there's my son. There's my son Esau. Here, son, the blessing. Jacob, the trickster, walks away thinking, got away with it. God says, the day is going to come when somebody's going to say to you, I am, and they're not going to be who they say. And it's going to really matter.
So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? I love this next statement. Why have you deceived me? Do you think that Isaac thought that question when he found out the truth? And do you think that Esau thought that question when he found out the truth? Everybody say with me, God's real. (laughs) That was kind of (laughs) weak. Yeah, he is. Gosh, he is real. So Jacob said, oh yeah, so Laban replied, this, is, this reply is so weak. Oh, did I forget to tell you? I'm sorry. It must have slipped my mind seven years ago. And all those times you were out there working in the fields and dealing with the herds and the flocks, I just, it just slipped my mind. I'm, I, I, wow, I'm sorry. Here's what I should have told you. It's not our custom here. Oh, really? It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. You can almost just hear and see Jacob's face can't you? Right there? It's turning red. He's got steam coming out of it. What do you mean? You for, Did I not tell you? Now, here comes, he got, he got taken by a con who was a better con than him. Because watch this. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also. In return, oh yeah, I'll be good about this. In return for another seven years of work, And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, let me tell you something. If you think Jacob wasn't thinking all the time when he was working a second seven years, if you think he wasn't thinking back to what happened with his dad and how it had now been visited upon him, you're not thinking human. He was human. And so here he is now, 14 years, 14 years for one woman. Wow. So, after, now, the Bible says that after those 14 years, and he had the two wives now, and had sired all those children, and Joseph was uh, second to last, I think Benjamin was last, Um, now, he works out a deal with Laban to increase his herds and his flocks, and he's there another six years, 20 years, when he thought it was going to be a month. Jacob decides to head back. And as the story goes, and I'll get through this um, pretty quickly, Jacob decides to head back. He, now his flocks and herds are greatly increased. He's, got, he's wealthy. God has blessed him those last six years. And now the 12 sons, the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel have all been born. So in Jacob's, in Jacob's sort of confinement, and while Jacob is learning the hard lessons... God works his purposes through it all. And while he's sitting there learning the hard lessons and serving Laban and sort of reaping what he had sowed, God is also working out his purpose to bring Genesis 3.15 to pass because now the 12 sons of the 12 tribes, including Judah, have now all been born. So he gets ready to leave and he leaves in the dead of night with his wives and his herds and his flocks. They leave in the dead of night without Laban knowing because he's afraid Laban will stop him. And so he leaves with this, this huge flock of cattle and, and, and sheep and so on and so forth and the wives and the little children in tow. And there they go. And Laban wakes up the next day and realizes it and begins to pursue him. Now Jacob is about to be sandwiched in between two potential catastrophes. He's got an angry 
father-in-law coming up behind him with servants with swords. And then he reaches near Canaan again and realizes that Esau is coming from the other direction. And so he's got pressure from both sides. He can't turn to the right, can't turn to the left. He cannot escape the pressure. If he goes back, he faces Laban and his old life and a life of misery. If he goes forward, he faces Esau who, though 20 years have gone by, has not forgotten what he did to him. And Jacob's terrified of him. So the Bible says that he sent the children and sent the wives on ahead of him and he got himself completely alone in one spot one night and he had a second spiritually defining moment. It says that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. This is what we called earlier in this lesson an epiphany. This is when, I believe, Christ appeared in time and space pre-incarnate before he'd ever been born of the Virgin Mary and dealt with a situation. He has an angel, capital A, dealing with him, wrestling with him. Folks, I'm going to tell you, some of the most spiritually defining moments you'll ever have is in the middle of wrestling with God about something. And if you walk with God, you're going to end up wrestling with God. You know why? Because His time isn't your time. His ways aren't your ways. His will most of the time isn't your will because you live in a house of flesh and He is spirit and He is perfect and He is pure. And so it puts us into conflict with God the Father often. We want His will, but we say with Jesus, Thy will be done, Thy will be done, but if there's any way this can pass from me, let it happen. And He sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. There are times you're going to wrestle with God. And here's when you're going to wrestle with God, when His will conflicts with yours. That's when you're going to wrestle with God. When you're going to know something is His will, and yet everything in you don't want it. He has run up against something in you uncrucified. And can I break some news to you tonight? You might be saved, sanctified, glorified, filled with the Holy Ghost, talking tongues, lay hands on the sick, anoint them with enough oil to slide them into the next room. But I'm going to tell you something. There's still some will in you. And you know what? God will find it. And you know what happens when he finds it? Conflict. We wrestle with God. And the wrestling is, how in the world can I accept your will? I don't want it. Can't you? Abraham went through this. Can't Ishmael live before you? No. Ishmael, I'm going to bless him, but no, he's not the son of promise. All of us have a time in life. Can't this live before you? Can't you amen this? And he'll let you have your fit. He'll let you sweat, cry, weep, howl, fast, pray. And then he'll say, no. (laughs) So here you are. He's wrestling with God till the break of day. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm, I'm to that place in my life right now. I'm praying all the time, Lord, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Indeed. Preached on that on the radio tonight. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. There comes a time when God wants to hear that kind of faith. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. 
And so at the end of the conflict, God reaches out and he pulls his thigh out of socket. And he limps for the rest of his life. Now I take that as a picture, and I want you to hear me on this, and I'm going to close. In the dealings of God, he will get you where you limp. And here's what I mean. You no longer depend on the strength of the flesh. You know, you know it's weak. And so God deals with you, and when you come out on the other side of the dealing, you say, if it happens, it's going to be you. If this comes to pass, it's going to be you. I live by your life, not my own. Your strength, not my own. Your peace, not my own. Your word, not my own. I'm limping because I've learned that in my flesh dwells no good thing. I've got to lean on you. For the rest of his days, he limped. Somebody said, I don't trust anybody who doesn't walk with a limp. Because you find that people who have gone through the dealings of God and they limp afterwards are trustworthy because they know what it means to be broken. They know what it means to be taken down where if God doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. If he doesn't resurrect me, I'm not coming back up. If he doesn't bring this to pass, there is no hope. And when you get to that place and you see God resurrect you and you see God bring something to pass that you thought was impossible, there's something about it that just humbles you to the level that from then on, you just walk with a limp. And that's what he did. I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob. Now, folks, uh, in closing, I'm going to say that is so significant because Jacob knew what his name meant. Here's what God was saying to him. I want you to be honest with me about who you are. Let's just get down and be honest about who, who you are. Don't you know that happened with Peter? Don't you know that when Jesus looked at Peter after he had gone to him, after he uh, denied him, and he, and he brought him up to the shore and was cooking the fish, and they were all having breakfast there on the shore, and Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, do you love me with agape love? Because that's what you said you did. You know what Jesus was looking for? Peter to be honest about who he was and who he wasn't. Because God can't change you until you're honest. So Jacob said, you know my name? God said, I want you to tell me who you are. Well, I've been, I've been a trickster. Yep, and I just paid 20 years for it. Yep. I was a trickster and manipulator. I thought that you needed my help to bring your will to pass. I thought that you needed my wits and my brains and my talent and my ability to finagle and, and, and con people. And God said, now do you see that I'll bring my will to pass my way and I don't need your help. My name is the trickster, Lord. And God said, no more. Because you can't cross that river and go back into Canaan like you were. I'm going to have to change you. And so your name is no longer Jacob. It's Israel. Prince with God. And God defined him. Mm. He defined him. He said, no longer is your past going to define you, Jacob. No longer are your mistakes going to define you. No longer is any of that going to define you. I'm redefining you right now. Israel. Don't call yourself a trickster ever again because now you're walking with a limp. Now you're Israel. And so Jacob the manipulator always relying on himself, his self-sufficiency as he came to this place, walks away from this place, 
limping with a new name. He crosses the river and enters into Canaan, meets Esau, says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Esau says, I'm just glad to see you. He hugs him and Israel enters Canaan. And as they settle, he and the 12 boys, he has no idea. He thinks he's going to die there. He has no idea that one day he's going to send Joseph out to check on his brothers and he's going to enter into pain again because they're going to come back with his coat of many colors drenched in animal blood telling him it's human blood and he's going to think Joseph is dead and he's going to go through a series of circumstances no soap opera writer could ever have come up with if you'd given him a year. He's going to go to Egypt where his son was sold into slavery and there he's going to die and we're going to look at that next week as we look at Joseph. Can we stand together? Amen. Say with me, when I wrestle with God, a defining moment is just around the corner. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your blessing, for your power, for your peace on the word. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to know, first of all, that you watch and weigh every one of our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. And Lord, help us to obey you and trust that the providence of God and the sovereignty of God is going to work out the will of God in your good time. And thank you, Lord, that as you blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph and brought your will to pass, now we are recipients of what you did through them. And so we bless you as those who have been saved by grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You say amen with me? All right, this Sunday I'm going to preach again on...